0: Tonight I'll conclude a series of four sermons, thematic series on the home and how it interrelates with the ministry of the church. And I said in my annual report, and will continue to say and will continue to work on, thrusts towards the family and ways to strengthen the homes, the family units within our fellowship this year, for I see that to be one of the ways that we need to help one another. And this fall, we'll be moving into some very practical areas where families can come together on an evening of the week and begin to share some of the things that we have been talking about and ways in living that out within the frameworks of our own homes. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, is a short psalm, but it deals with the home Just five verses long. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to go to bed late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For God gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. How blessed is a man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. I'd like for us to say that uh, first verse... The first half of the first verse together, because that emphasizes really uh, what I want to say tonight. I'll read it out of my translation, so I, you can compare it to yours and make any adjustments that you need to make. But this one says, "Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it." Let's say that together. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Who build it? Tonight, the three R's of a home will be relationships and rules and roles within the framework of the home. But unless the Lord builds the house, all of our labor is in vain. And no matter how many little rules and guidelines and uh, how many principles you try to apply, unless God is involved in building the house... Like the scripture says, we can stay up late and we can rise up early and try to get all this done on the human level, and it just won't work unless God is building the house. First of all, let's look at relationships. I said that relationships are governed by three principles, and they also start with the letter P, and that's the people principle, the pardon principle, and the perpetuation principle. And in relationships, the people principle goes something like this. People are God's idea. People aren't man's idea. People didn't happen out of uh, evolution. It was in the paper today, Battle Over School Books Becoming Educational War. Some of you probably read that article. It follows up some of the legislation that the Supreme Court has uh, laid down this week. It's not, there two are not connected, but they're related. Roger was praying in his prayer that those things that would appear to be wholesome and good are on the attack today, and there's a positive side to that, and there's a negative side to that. But one of the things that's happening, according to this article, is, uh, they sort of tongue-in-cheek are making fun of fundamental Christians for standing up and saying that our society and some of the books, and they pointed out what some of them were, are headed in the direction of humanism and have been heading that way for a long time and have saying that the biblical account of creation and the fact that God has made it all has been ignored in the school system today. Several other books that... Uh, would major on some very controversial issues, even the elementary level. I guess that's what really got this whole thing started in Georgia, was one book and some of the issues that it was addressing to some smaller kids. And the parents rose up and said, it it just shouldn't be. So the school board said, okay, we will ban this book. And one of the critics of that group said that was just like opening Pandora's box and now they've got a whole list of books that they want under consideration and and they've been stockpiling their list from the uh, National Association of Christian Educators and they're recommending these wholesome books with some positive stories. But the end of the article said that the group does not expect to prevail in its textbook case before the school board. You see, in many areas, and the the title of the article was Secular Humanism Under Fire in Educational Wars. You see, it has subtly become the standard which is now under fire by some Christians trying to demise the standard that exists. The people are God's idea. And in God's idea of the person, we talk about respect for the individual. Society would look at individuals and say, I will choose this one, and this one's all right, and I will love that one, and I don't care too much for this one. And and we make objects out of them. And we do that with some of the magazines that are under controversy today. It just makes objects out of people. They lose their identity they lose the fact that they're made by God and God has a plan and His will for their lives. Under the people principle, it's people are God's idea and we need to have respect for the individual and that comes right down within the framework of the home so that we realize that each of us are creations of God and we love and respect each other. And then also there's the uniqueness of the individual. None of us are the same. And I don't care if your quiver is full of children, like the Scripture says, every one of those little quivers, every one of those little arrows is different. Uh, They're all unique. That's just the way that God does things. Which brings me from the people principle down to the pardon principle. You see, because we are so different, then bring that brings the pardon principle into play because we are so different, we don't think alike. And given a situation, we'll react differently to it. And because we have a different opinion than someone else, there's a conflict and there's a problem. Well, God has given us one answer for conflicts, no matter where they happen, and that, that answer is forgiveness, the pardon principle. So in the framework of the home, if it's going to happen anywhere and have its effect, we need to realize that there will be misunderstandings, there will be hurt feelings, and the only way that God wants us to work together through those hurts is through the pardon principle of forgiveness. Then also the perpetuation principle, and this is the kind of thing that just keeps us going. Or it talks about the first command and to be fruitful and to multiply. And in Psalm 127, it talks about children being a heritage of the Lord, that they are reward of life. And it says how happy you are and how blessed you are if your quiver is full of them. It it uses the picture of children being arrows. And I jotted down some things that The ways children are like arrows. First of all, they're carefully crafted. I've never made an arrow. Well, I take that back. I have tried to make an arrow. When I was growing up, we had the bows and arrows, and sometimes we'd lose some, and before we could get to town again to buy some more, we tried to make some, and I learned the hard way that those things have to be carefully crafted and straight or you don't know where they're going to go. We're like that. The scripture says that God has carefully crafted us. We are skillfully and wonderfully made. Another way that children are like arrows is you can aim them in a certain direction. You can, you can at least point them the right, the right way. you are not always going to hit the target that they're aimed at. But at least you can point them in the right direction. And with the pointing, then the final thing about the arrow is that once it's released, there is no control. And we also realize that with children, too, that you can, although you point them in the right direction, once it's released, then there, it's, it's hard to control that situation because with children, there also is the release. This passage of Scripture says that children are helpful against our enemies. It also says that Uh, we'll not be ashamed when, when we speak to someone at the gate. Now, we don't sit at the city gate like they used to. But in cross referencing some passages of Scripture, looking at the meaning of this passage, according to Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 27, people used to stand at the gate and, and begin to debate. And according to this passage, and the inferences are left here, if things were harmonious at home, then the person that was debating could concentrate on the job and the task that was at hand. And so if children were peaceful at home and things were, ble- were a blessing at home, then he could concentrate on the, on the uh, debate and not be ashamed. And also then he would not be criticized if someone would attack him as far as, well, this is happening in your family. Then he said also, I would not have to be ashamed. But there's another enemy that children can help us with and those are enemies that we all face such as the tendency to be selfish, the tendency to have greed, or to be slothful. And we find that children are always a reminder to keep these things out of our lives and so together we begin to fight some of the common enemies that we all would face in life. And so that is the relationships. Our relationships are governed by the people principle, the pardon principle, and the perpetuation principle. Next the second R, rules. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, the rules, and none of us really like to talk about rules, however they do exist. And God gives us a list. As soon as I said Exodus chapter 20, some of you knew what I was turning to. It's the Ten Commandments. And the Word of God is key if we're going to have rules for the home. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about each one of these commandments tonight, but I would say this, that the first commandment should also be our first commandment of the home. You shall have no other gods before me in other words the lord should be first in the framework of the home and that should be rule number 1 verses 4 5 and 6 talk about worship it says you're more not to have idols and we shall worship the lord god and him only and then it talks about remember the sabbath day and keep it holy and so we begin to see that also a part of the rules of the home would be worship together. Then we also would look down and the next commandment has to do with the with, uh, honor your father and your mother. The rest of the commandments deal then with our relationships both within and without of the home. But can you see kind of the structure of the commandments first? The commandments puts God in his rightful place as supreme in our lives. Secondly, the concept of worship comes into play. And third, before we begin to deal with the relationships as it would affect other people, God has specifically talked about the home. Honor your father and your mother. And we begin to see some structure as far as the rules and of the home would, would, would be would be concerned. And those are basically the rules of life. And I don't know what rules you would have in your home. It would depend on your situation. It would depend on your children and, and uh, all that would be uh, particulars of your home. But make sure that the rules that we establish are based on God's Word. And make sure also that just as God spells out the consequences, so we must spell out the consequences as well. The major part of the sermon tonight deals with roles. Not only do we need relationships that are strong and true and right within the home, and not only do we need certain rules and understand what they are and what the consequences are, but we also need to identify what the roles of the home are. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and you would probably suspect me to turn to that passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 5. Before we get into this passage, let me just say some things. We don't think as the world thinks. We don't act like the world acts. We don't talk like the world talks. We don't set goals like the world sets goals. And we don't do things like the world because we are different from the world. The Word of God specifically says, Be not conformed to this world. You see, that's our distinction. Our distinction is our identification with God and His Word. That's why I get so disturbed when I begin to read articles and we begin to go to court to decide what's right and wrong. But the issue of right and wrong is settled in God's Word, not by the dictates of society. That's what makes us different, you see. God said, I have called you out. The word sanctification means he has set us apart. There is not very much hope if you're just playing games with religion. We must come to the place where we are before God, consecrated to him, our homes are dedicated to him, and we say to him, Lord, fill me and keep me filled with your spirit. Because the things that I'm going to say tonight that come from this next passage are directly related back to verse 18 that says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the key, you see, in having a successful home and relationships within it. Just to be different is not enough. If we're not different by being filled with the Holy Spirit, then pretty soon we will become filled with the world. And we won't be different anymore. But we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that God can make us the kind of people that He's called us to be. And now let's look at verse 22. Well, let's look at verse 21 because that's that's so much... That's important. We've got to read verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Before we get into any kind of the the roles tonight, I want to say this. The concept of marriage is mutual submission. Submission. It's a submission of the wife to the husband, and we're going to talk about that. It's also submission of the husband to the wife, and we'll talk about that. It's submission of children to parents, and in a certain way, it's submission of parents back to their children. It's a mutual submission. We'll never do it unless we're filled with the Spirit, but that's the concept. Now we go into verse 22. Wives. Be subject, and if you have a translation like mine, you'll see that the words be subject is not there. I mean, it's italicized, which means it's not there in the original. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, just because it's not there in the original doesn't mean that it's inappropriate for the word be subject to be there. Some of your translations say be in submission to your husband." because it's making reference back to verse 21 that says, be subject one to the other. And if you do cross-referencing of this passage, you'll look at Colossians 3.18, where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. You'll also come across 1 Peter 3, where it says, wives, in the same manner, submit to your husbands. So it's not inappropriate that the word submit is there. But sometimes we... We read it in the context of what we're hearing in society today and and if we ask the wives to repeat back what does it say your responsibility is, they'd say submit. <laughs> it's kind of, it kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth and you don't want to say it too loudly and uh, it's kind of like the word doormat. I mean, submit? Well, that's not the concept. And neither is the concept Notice the word is submit, and it's not obey. You see, obey is listed in chapter 6, verse 1. Children obey. Wives are not to obey. They're to submit. That's different. You see, and because wives are not supposed to obey, then husbands are not to command. It's not fetch this, do this, go get that, uh, fix this, I need that. You know, see, that's, that's commanding. And that means that wives are not submitting because the husband is there dictating. That's not the way the home is to be run. It's submission. And it's not slavery. (laughs) Might feel like it sometimes, but it's not slavery. You see, it goes back to that concept of mutual submission. It is willing submission to the leadership of her husband for the sake of workability. That's what it is. If you want to know the strongest passage that I think is behind this one, turn over to Philippians chapter 2. The concept is so bold here. And look at verses 5 through 7. You could almost put in the, because the principle is here so strong, you could say, Wives, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, you could say, although you exist in the form of man, Christ did not regard equality with God as a thing to be re- grasped. Do not regard equality with your husband as a thing to be grasped. But empty yourself and take on the form of a love slave and be, and being made in his likeness. That is the strongest parallel passage that I know of that gives us the definition, the biblical definition of what it is to submit. And notice it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And it also begins already to begin to reveal his role as provider, the one who's giving loving care and security. But what if that kind of leadership is not given? And here's where I get a lot of conversation where a wife says, but that's not my husband. I mean, he's not leading that way in our home. Turn over to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's that word submission again. Verse 1, in the same way, wives... Be submissive to your husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, etc. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in God's sight. That passage says, in the same way. Now, wives, go back to verse 18, where it says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Same principle. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a man bears up under sorrow when suffering unjustly. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and you suffer for it patiently, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. Why? Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Likewise, ye wives, if you happen to be married to an unreasonable guy and are not very pleased with his leadership, what's your responsibility then? According to 1 Peter 3, you are to continue to be submissive to those husbands so that by your chaste, that is your pure, your virtuous behavior, coupled with respect that you are giving to that husband, they may be one. not by your preaching a sermon, not by you writing the four spiritual laws in the bottom of their coffee cup, not by you doing things like that, but by saying to them with a meek and quiet spirit, I am, I am being submissive to you in the fear of the Lord. Now that's the direction that Scripture is given. And it says, if you want to be really beautiful in the sight of God, and the strong inference is also with your own husband, then don't put a lot of emphasis on externals. Now, Notice it didn't say that it was wrong, that externals were wrong. Don't miss the point. It just says that's not where the emphasis is to be. The emphasis is to be in our attitude, in 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 the words that are used here, is a meek, which is gentle, and quiet spirit. And it said that the beautiful thing to God is this hidden person of the heart. Now, that's what the wives are called to do. But why is this not popular today? Why did I take care in prefacing this by saying in order for this to be fulfilled, we have to be filled with the Spirit. Because in our society we have almost been brainwashed by this godless, non-biblical, humanistic philosophy. The idea has been brewing and growing for a long time that our society should have no sexes, no distinctions, no authority, and no submission. And the, in the church today, if we're not careful, then we'll have a tendency to soak just a part of that up and incorporate it along with our theology until the Word of God is no longer the standard, but the Word of God as it is, as it is meted in with our society. But the, this is the authority, God's Word. I believe, according to Scripture, And if you can show me passages where this isn't true, I want to see them. But I believe under Scripture, the primary responsibility and the role of a wife is in the framework and setting of the home. I see a wife with her primary responsibility first, her relationship with God. That's first. There has to be this virtuous attitude. There has to be the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's primary. But then there's strong attention, both Old and New Testament, talking about her role with her husband, being supportive of him, being an encouragement to him, being a helper to him, sharing in ministry with him, being involved in church with him. That is her role, to fulfill her husband. We'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Her second role, primary role in the framework of the home, is for her children. To equip them, to teach them of the things of God. Proverbs 1, chapter 1 says, not only are children to listen to the instruction of their father, but they are also to follow the law of their mother. And the wife needs to be equipped to begin to share also with her children those spiritual things to build up their lives. When she is fulfilling this responsibility of the home, I think then there are areas and opportunities for ministries outside that home. But her primary responsibility deals within the framework of the home. I believe that to be God's word. And when things come in and begin to usurp that time and that responsibility, a red flag ought to go up and say there's a danger signal here. But you see, that's not the way our society is geared. And I could say a whole lot of things here. And some of it might get too close to home. But it's troubling if we, if we let other things come in and take that place that God has reserved. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Verses 18 through 22. We're transitioning now into the role of the husband. And then the Lord said, It's not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see that what he would call them. And whatever man called him, called the living creature, that was its name. And then it said he gave names to, to everything. And then it said, so God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. Verse 21, and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up his flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Here in this setting, and we could go on and, and read it. Let's read 23 and 24 as well. And the man said, Now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause the man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh." In this setting we have the man who is the provider, he's giving leadership, God has given him authority, he is caring for that which God has given to him, and the woman in her role was fitting and suitable and was a helper to him. Also there was unity as listed in verse 23, and it talks about that unity. And the wife here followed willingly. They existed in oneness until sin came in to the picture. Look at verses in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. And when sin came in, it disrupted what God had made originally. This is in the midst of the curse that God is giving because of sin, and he said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, I hadn't really perceived nor studied this part of the curse until recently, and I found two unrelated authors that reveal the same thing about this passage, and I want to share it with you. For they said that this last phrase, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, talks about what most people face in the setting of their home. It is a part of the curse that is a result of sin. The only other place where this word used, I think it's used three times, The second place where this word desire, your desire shall be for your husband is in chapter 4 verse 7. And it says there, talking about Cain, if you do not, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. In other words, sin, Cain, is desiring to control you. But it says you shall master it. The same word is used exactly the same way now when the God has talked about the curse that's coming on the home and He said, Your desire shall be to control your husband. Now that's causing a problem with the direction of the New Testament Scripture. Now do you see why we cannot do that unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit? We can't live the direction of the home in the New Testament without being filled. Because it's under the curse. Listen what the, and he shall rule over you. God said because you went over him and you sinned and then he followed your direction, the curse to you is that he shall rule over you, but the curse to him is that he shall, you shall continually desire to control him. Now I've got a problem. Now, how does a man try to take charge of this? (laughs) We're so stupid. We look at this and we say, okay, I'll take charge here. We try to dominate. The macho image comes out and we see it all over society. We become a little dictator in our palace. You know, we we is the king. We're in command here. So what's behind all of this women's movement to come to the front and equality and and, uh, superiority? And what's behind all this male chauvinism that says, oh, no, we need to keep them in their place and, and that we are the ones that are in charge? Both of those are wrong because they both come out of the curse. You see? Be filled with the Holy Spirit, so wives are to willingly submit to the leadership of their husbands. And men are to love their wives. Now, if you think that women have it tough, the command is to love. It doesn't say order. It doesn't say rule. It doesn't say command. It says love. How? As Christ. How do we love as Christ? If we just take, I think, probably the chief criticism about us, man. We just read some books or talk to some counselors, we'll come up with these. I think the favorite things that are said are things like this. He doesn't listen to me. He doesn't know my needs. He doesn't understand me. He doesn't know how I really feel. Or, we just never talk. Be considerate. See what I mean about being tough? That's how Christ loves. He doesn't rule and dictate and command, He loves with great consideration. And show concern in this passage in Ephesians about why the way. Men are to love, it says, as Christ loved the church. He wanted to present to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that, that she should be holy before him. That's what kind of a church Christ wanted. Showing concern. What things frustrate our wives? Are we concerned enough to really know what that is? What are those things that rob her from her glory? I mean, we should be wanting to present to ourselves a wife without spot or wrinkle, a glorious wife. Because if she's glorious and happy, that's a praise to us. And we feel a whole lot better. How do we do that? How do we present? We need to find out what makes her frustrated so we can help her with that so we can present back to ourselves the kind of wife that we desire. What robs her of her joy? What is there in your wife's life that takes the joy out of it? We need to know that so we can help put it back. What is there that is taking her time? What is there that complicates her priorities so that she's not becoming the person before God that she wants to be. And then we move in and we assist her. We let her know that that's the most important thing for us, is for her to be a godly woman, and to help her with her priority and her schedule and her time, so that she can be before God what she wants to be. It first appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, and I think since then it's appeared nearly everywhere. It's called The Seven Stages of Marriage Viewed from the Common Cold. The first year. The husband says, Sugar, darling, I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle, and there's no telling about these, these things, you know, like strep throat going around. I'm putting you in a hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and bed rest. I know the food isn't good there, so I'm going to go across the street and bring you every day food from the cafeteria. Now, don't try to disagree with me because, you see, I've already made all the arrangements. Year one. Year two, common cold. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I called the doctor and I told him we'd meet him first thing in the morning in his office. Now go to bed like a good girl until we can get the proper medication for you. Year three. Maybe you'd better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when when you're feeling lousy. I'll bring you something to eat. Uh, Do we have a can of soup? Year 4. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you've fed the kids and washed the dishes and finished the laundry, you'd better lie down. Year 5. Sounds like you've got a cold. Why don't you take a couple aspirants? Year 6. I wish you'd just gargle or something instead of sitting around all evening barking like a seal. Here's seven. For Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? Well, (laughs) that appears to be humorous. But something is happening in marriages that over half of them don't make it. Something is happening in marriages where the relationships are not holding. Husbands are to love their wives. Is it a feeling? I've had guys say to me, I just don't love her anymore. I mean, it's not there, Pastor. It's not there. (laughs) Love as Christ loved is not a feeling. Now, the feeling might be there, and you ought to be glad if it is. But that's not what love is. You see, Jesus didn't base His life for His church and His disciples on how He felt. The Scripture does not say God felt good about the world so He sent His only begotten Son and whosoever believes on Him. No. God loved the world because it was the world. There was nothing to love in the world. And Christ loved so much. You see, we were so bad, there was so much ugliness about us that He had to shed His very blood to make us acceptable to the Father. And He loved us that much. The disciples were arguing one night over who was to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How do you think Jesus felt about them. He was probably, if anything, felt grief or sorrow listening to this arguing. But you know what he did? You know. He took a towel and a basin and he washed their feet. He demonstrated love in spite of their behavior. Now that's love. It's not an emotion, it's an action that meets needs and is doing what needs to be done. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be that kind of a husband. If you want to see a genuine man, find one who will make sacrifices for his wife, find one who is willing to die for her, Find one who is willing to give up everything he has to meet her needs. And you've found a genuine man. And if you've got one, thank God for him. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's only one thing left, and we're not going to take a lot of time with it, except just to mention it. We talked about it somewhat this morning, and so I'll just, I'll save whatever I have for another time. But when it talks about children, there's a word that's used, and children, the word here is obey. Bill Cosby said it sounds like pig Latin. Obey. (laughs) But it's not. The word is tied into one of the Ten Commandments when it says honor your father and your mother and God's promise is that if you do that, things will go well with you. And then the other side of that coin, it says to the parents, don't provoke your children to wrath, but instead teach them, admonish them in the things of God. Do you see why that we really don't have any hope in the church unless our homes are filled with the Holy Spirit? And in that setting, we can live out God's will and His plan for our lives as husbands, as wives, as men and women, and as children in the framework of knowing God's truth on the authority of His Word. No, some of these things aren't very popular in the world today. But he has called us to be the church, the unique ones, his chosen. Stand with me, please.